If we begin with the orange blossom of yesterday, and whatever that is for you in the very depth of your own heart, it might be fishing with your grandfather, the image of a mountain, the sky, the embrace of your mother holding you when you were a babe. <clears throat> it might be the taste of a certain food, the leaf of a certain tree, a mitten, your grandmother or mother or auntie or an elder woman or an older sister knitted for you or a dress sewn or walking on a trail with your father silently, no words between you, but the intimacy of father and son. Whatever that place is <clears throat> in the still point of eternity of your heart and soul, when you go to that place of memory and sentiment, a whole array of perceptions occurs where everything in you becomes one with a gesture toward the tree of life you are part of. And in that alignment becomes a centeredness that is your path. I'm going to extrapolate out for the next several sections of this retreat to do a kind of um, musculature movement through consciousness to resolve either deeply or very subtly aspects where you might be a little bit off or very much off in your alignment from that still point of eternity or living harmoniously from it in your own alignment with the divine from the past to the present into the future. So from that concept of the orange blossom, there is the quality of the perfume of holiness, the aspect of my experiences of the divine and the blessing of life. And then I am vulnerable, able to be touched by the divine as I move in life toward my next breath and moment. So whatever this is for you that is from the past, from within yourself, which allows a vulnerability toward the holiness of heaven, the essential nature of heaven moving through you as grace embodied. Allow that in yourself. And then the next breath toward the next moment. And be aware in yourself of how you simply find a natural writing of the alignment of all parts of your being. The soul, the spiritual heart, the inner voice, a quieting or writing of the mind, and all parts of the ego personality or identity or character that's in all the layers of the aura and chakras are, are in different systems, different numbers of them. Let's say there are about 150 of them. They align, sort of rearrange themselves like a wild bird adjusting her feathers on a high branch or his feathers on a high mesa or cliff. Then the etheric body, the tree bark around the physical body is aware I'm not dying in this moment. 
I think I'll let the physical body adjust and be a safe vessel for that central point of the heart chakra, the still point of eternity. And then there is a very subtle moment of wonder. Oh, will I be dead or alive in the next breath? It's this wonder. Oh. And in that wonder, in that experience of acute vulnerability to God, this is where we have free will. What I like to utilize as a phrase in any classes I've taught for about 40 years is the word, the choiceless choice, the phrase, the choiceless choice. There is one choice, really, which is unified in that awesome moment of vulnerability. Oh, And then God and we enact that perfume of God's holiness, his holiness, her holiness, that great one's holiness, heaven's holiness. And we are a dewdrop of that, or we are a child studying that, serving that, exemplifying, realizing that. So it's not that we're holy, we are an instrument trying to call that forward everywhere, in everyone, in eternity. The experience of that becomes a quiet, innocent wisdom, gently ecstatic, alive, on our path. And then we enact this through the cells of our body in the current, into the next moment. Within the current, into the next moment. In that current moment, there is the existence of ourselves gently moving towards some expression of realization. And then into the next moment, we become an aspect of the Buddha-to-be, or the saintly figure or sagely figure we are studying to become, God willing, heaven willing. What does this feel like for you? What is the experience of this? <clears throat> and then we have to continually allow this pulsation of spiritual life, the movement of a conscious pulse of the soul and the heart as one's path. And I would like us to be with the two aspects which conflict us and cause us great confusion about what should we do next? What might we do next? What would be consciously intelligent or wise and loving to do next? And <clears throat> there are two areas where this tends to afflict us. One of them is in the misuse of affinity. So I'll make up an example. Let's say that I have my orange blossom fragrance and I am wearing it and someone comes in and has chosen a different kind of it to wear and says, well, I like this one better. I might say, that's great. I'm going to wear this one because I like yours, but I like this one better. They're testing to find their own relationship to the center of their heart. And if they're able to do that, the place within our mutual hearts bows to the divine 
we're seeking. Oh, I'm so thrilled that you're studying your relationship to the divine through that beautiful flower. How lovely. <clears throat> and then the person might say, I don't know if I really like the flower, you know. It's not my favorite flower. They're not changing the nature of what I feel in my heart of hearts. But often what we do when we push and pull on other beings like this is we're saying, I'm going to conquer you. I don't really feel safe in God, so I'm going to try to shut you down so you don't either, and then I don't have to wake up, right? And then we tend to think, well, but I need to create that safety against someone hurting my feelings like that. So a million times a day, one walks through one's room, tent, apartment, home, refugee camp, office, public transportation, grocery store, park, urban square, <clears throat> rural village, and we walk past another person who causes a reaction. They, they perceive us from afar and they make a decision to enter the next moment, not from the center of the heart, of the spiritual heart, but protecting the center of their spiritual heart by denying it and then projecting that denial onto you or me. And they look up and think, you know, I don't really like that person's jacket. Not my favorite color. And then as they get closer, we, we've actually felt the lack of the wind of God moving through the street or the field or the urban square. We're suffering because of this tiny mood <clears throat> of, of a stopping of the winds of grace. The person has said, I could, I could stop my heart from awakening when that person walks toward me if I wanted to. And they do. I could stop myself from awakening for this moment till I know more about who that person is, till I like their jacket better, or maybe their scarf, or I don't like their skirt or their trousers either, or their face or their eyes or the color of their skin or the city I think they come from or the 18 tribes they come from. I don't like any of them. Or that one, or the one I don't even know about, or the one they think they're from when they're really from a different one. And we push and pull to try to keep the very center of our heart that isn't quite awake to the still point of eternity yet in control. I will be in control and I will let the still point of eternity be experienced by me in God when I feel like it. And we use that to cause incomprehensible suffering to ourselves almost every moment of life. And then we extrapolate it out to every other human being around us. And so <clears throat> when we live from this point, there are two aspects I want to mention that I think are very simple and clear. We could use a concept from any religion, and rather than having one religion fight against another, or one language or culture fight against another, 
we could just allow a phrase, and we'll do this in the next few classes. This one will come from Judaism in the study of the Kabbalah, which is not historically to happen, except when a man turns the age of 40, has a family, and is thought to have had the maturity that he could find his way to this point of the heart and soul. So one of the constructs in the Kabbalistic study of the Tree of Life is when we're not centered, too much mercy is weakness. Too much strength is cruelty. So the cruelty, in the manner I'm speaking of, is when we project out, don't know about the color of your sweater, don't know about your age, the street you live on, Hi, it's really good to see you. When we come out against the winds of God moving through other beings and through ourselves, <clears throat> we're causing a violence of not remembering, not being, and not becoming. Too much cruelty. I'm sorry, too much strength. Cruelty. And we are willfully saying, I'm not willing or ready to awaken yet in this breath or moment into the next one. And then we start creating concepts of what we think is real around us, the color of their sweater, the nature of their university or their job, their income, the vase on their table, no flowers in it, old flowers in it, flowers we don't like. And you know, it's never enough because there's no way that anything perceived from that place is in Hinduism considered real. We're looking at the unreal, the maya, the illusion, the projected concept of what we think we're perceiving. And literally all we have to do is go to the still point of eternity in the depth of the heart and soul and allow God and ourselves to enact grace and take the next breath. And all the Maya in the universe has no power over that place of light, of embodied grace. We take the next breath. Not too much strength, not cruelty. We're centered. What does this feel like? Virtually every moment in which one has been injured by another being can be forgiven, offered to the absolute, to source, to the divine in all of its names. And then just breathing and praying or contemplating or meditating, whether you're still or falling asleep at night and letting yourself be in a restful state or awakening in the morning and turning to the light of the new day, or walking in the wilderness, being out in nature, being quietly at home. One can simply become the still point of eternity, moving through recapitulating all of your past in this manner, until you let the holiness of God move through every part of your history, every part of all that you are, all the way through the cells of the body, 
And then from the still point of eternity and the depth of the heart, you take one breath and offer a gesture of living prayer, a vase with one flower in it, an empty vase offered to God, a rose bush planted in your garden, <clears throat> a flower given to an elder neighbor. It becomes very still, not so much silent as receptive. Oh, I am receptive. I am receiving grace so that I am naturally listening and looking or seeking and smelling or tasting or feeling for God in everything through all of my senses because my consciousness is willing to allow God to be at the very center of my spiritual heart, controlling or defining or naming all that I am. And I am in this with God so that there is one as God reveals to me the next moment of the mystery. Oh, consciousness. Oh. And then there is a knowing. And when the knowing is embodied, there is an experience of love. And then we are in our classroom, we are in our home. Oh, I am fully on my path in my incarnation. So as you recapitulate this, please don't let anyone ever stop you from this practice. Know that beings like me are practicing this to the best of our ability, every breath, every moment of our lives, all over the world, most of us unknown. Who's there wearing the orange blossom perfume? No one, everyone, desert flowers. This wonderful old gentleman in Istanbul his family shop sells essential oils and walking sticks and small vials of orange blossom or neroli essential oil from the fields in Turkey. All over the world, the flowers are blooming and some of those flowers are human beings. So you can cultivate this garden walking by every human being, calling forward the essential scent of God's perfume from the place in each human being where eternity dwells. You have permission in your free will offered to God to embody representing that. And then the strength turning to cruelty from other people will hurt your feelings, but it won't stop the heart and it won't stop God answering you in the fulfillment of every essential moment of your life as you go forward. Now, let's go to the other aspect of this. Too much mercy is weakness. When one is in the center point of the heart and 
moves toward a sense of receptivity or vulnerability and is embodying this practice and says, it's okay if anyone does anything to me, I don't mind. I'm nothing. Along with nothing, you're also everything. Nothing doesn't mean a lack of respect. It doesn't really mean there's no one there. It means rather that there's no one more important than another person. There's no one saying no to God throughout the universe. You're listening for, looking for, perceiving for him or her or that great one everywhere. That requires that the vessel of your incarnation be tended, cared for, balanced, nutrition, rest, exercise, affection or intimacy of family and friends, loved ones, neighbors, colleagues, nature, cleanliness of clothing and body. Then you're caring for that empty vessel that is full of grace. Oh, just enough mercy, not weakness. How must I care for the very center of my heart of hearts so that the still point of eternity is at ease within me? So that I'm walking past people who are sometimes kind, sometimes fickle, and sometimes unkind. I am respectful and think I'm not walking past the people there who are being so cruel. I'm not going through the traffic jam right now. I'll go later. I used to do this in New York City years ago, in the year after my father died. I stayed at our family home just outside the city and uh, worked in the city during the holiday season. And I would <clears throat> leave, and rather than coming home by uh, bus and, and subway back into the home, I would wait until the rush hour crowds were diminished. When I went during the rush hour, I found I was so aware of people in the packed car and so many of them were venting the day just thinking a lot of really hostile thoughts toward each other fatigue irritability tiredness disdain dismay anguish inadequate resources i would find that mercy in me was pouring out to them and often people were just not kind to one another it wasn't about me they might not offer an old woman with a cane a seat. Some young man would just sit there looking up at her and refusing to move, read the newspaper. And, you know, who knows what his day was about? Who knows what her day was about? I remember getting up a number of times and simply offering an older person or a pregnant woman my seat. And occasionally having a younger person say, I'm sorry, you know, why don't I get up? And I go, that's okay. It's okay. They may have had a much harder day than I did. But I, I knew from my heart I was willing, I have to give that woman my seat. I have to give that, that man with the cane whose legs barely function my seat. Remember a gentleman saying to me, no, 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 you sit there. And I said, no, I, I think you go ahead. You go ahead, I'm, I'm really good today. 
So I don't have the back of either of my knees. I don't have what's called the ACL ligament. So my legs often hurt a great deal. It's part of why my body's heavy and I'm somewhat sedentary. I've had a heart attack. I had cancer in my late 20s. I've had very rigorous sufferings in my body, but they haven't hurt the center of my heart. And if I need to sit down, I will tell people, excuse me, but could I have that seat, please? I, it really would help me a lot to sit down. Thank you so much. But those years ago in New York City and Manhattan, I, I didn't need to do that. So you'll find that this movement of defining mercy, so it's not too much mercy, making you weak, but the kind of mercy that renders you humble and true is extremely beautiful. It's just beautiful. When we see a photograph of a human being from somewhere in the world, uh, I have a, a copy of a photograph of a woman <clears throat> taken by Josephus Daniels, the late Josephus Daniels, who was a very close friend of mine. He was a photographer for Life magazine and the Associated Press and UPI. And he was just the most profound man. His wife, Jean, also was a close friend. They lived in the Carmel Valley. But he worked for many years around the world. And he took a photograph of a nun, an Eastern Orthodox nun, uh, years ago, in front of a stone wall, tending a, a rather wanton rose bush that was not in very good condition. And the photograph is so austere, the stone wall, the difficult bush struggling, the aging woman bent over, tending it. It's just incredibly beautiful. She is disciplined, caring for her convent and herself and her roses. She's so vulnerable. It's not too much strength becoming cruelty, but she's strong. And it's not too much mercy becoming weakness. It's just right. It's just infinitely beautiful to me. And in it is Josephus's love, which is alive as I speak of it, and the way his heart and mine met the first day we ever met. We just met. So when this quality in you of strength and mercy meets, oh, there is God. Oh, what is that? I go, that is the home of grace in your heart. And then that home starts to enact the grace. And often we shut that down and go, I don't know what to do with this. You know, I was always taught this wasn't safe. I go, it is always safe. It is the one experience of life one can always trust. It is the source of everything we study in the Buddha or Jesus or Muhammad or the mother and the milk nurse of Muhammad and the daughter of Muhammad and the Pharaoh's wife or daughter who saved Moses and Moses' mother and the men. Whenever we live from this place, there is God. It never causes harm. It always shows us heaven embodied. Let us pray and practice.